Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. Once again, and always, I am joined by my co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. It was my birthday at the weekend. I'm in my final year of my 20s. Um, don't know where my 20s have gone, but never mind. Um, but I, I had a uh, really Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold the line here, Tilly. Hold the, hold the, hold the line here, my friend. <laughs> Why did I not know it was your birthday? Have you ever told because... me when your birthday is? No, I don't think I have. No, I'm trying to keep it like on the down low. I, I'm not a big birthday person fan, really, um, especially as now I feel old. It's my last year of my 20s. Next year will be the big 30. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of wanting the years to just slip by without much commemoration. But I did go to the theatre. Um, so I went to see The Beekeeper of Aleppo, Um in the Salisbury Playhouse and it was such a good performance I mean it wasn't really birthday appropriate because it was really sad and everyone in the audience including me cried because it's just really emotional story about Syrian refugees coming over to this country but um it's really powerful I had a good time what you could have done Tilly is if you want to have a cry about your birthday but didn't want people to know you could have gone along there and just cried about your birthday and people would have thought you were crying about the play I mean, I wasn't like hating on my birthday so much that I wanted to cry about it. I'm not quite there yet. I think I've got another few years before I start crying that I'm getting older. Well, I turn 40 in six months' time, Tilly, so, you know, maybe I'll be at the Beekeeper of Aleppo. Why are you crying, Vince? Uh, touch and show, touch and show as I sit there thinking about the existential dread as I face my midlife crisis. You've already had your midlife crisis, I feel like. You're, you're out the other side. Well, well, uh, reserve that thought until I tell you what I've been looking at buying this week. Oh, no. Come on, then. What have you been, what have you been looking at? Camper van. Oh, that is a midlife crisis. I fancy myself yeah. a camper. What, like one of those VW ones, those traditional? Yeah. <gasps> I well, love not, them. Not, not traditional. I've um, long fancied a camper. Um, when I was a very young child, uh, about six year old, my mother and her part of the time took me on a tour of Southern England. I went to Salisbury Hill. I remember being at Salisbury Hill and Salisbury Plain. I was down your neck of the woods when I was a youngster. Uh, we went all around the south coast of England and we hipped all over to France. And it stuck with me, even though, you know, the vast majority of memories of my mum's care weren't good and certainly not regarding a boyfriend who was a, a nasty piece of work, to put it politely. Um, I remember that vividly and I've always liked the idea of a camper. And, you know, my mum's got a camper now, her and her, her, her husband now, he's, 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 a, he's a lot nicer. He's too nice, for, if anything. I sometimes think that he could do better than my own mother. Uh, but let's not start going down that rabbit hole. And I've always fancied myself a camper guy. I just think I could buy into that lifestyle. And I wrote about this uh, last August in, in my uh, weekly column that I write every Thursday on mysocialworknews.com. I wrote about the idea of getting a camper, and I was kind of fascinated by this lifestyle, which I deemed the nomadic social worker. And I've dwelled on it, and I've ruminated on this thought for a long time since. 
The issue I have with getting a traditional larger camper, though, is it would leave us as a three-car household, which is unnecessary. I'd need a normal car for work. You know, you can't be rocking up in a full-on camper van when you're going to assess a family or rocking up to a core team. I can't imagine you get a few strange looks at court, I reckon, if you hopped up in a VW camper. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong, but my assumption is that people would find that somewhat untoward. As well as that, the driveway outside our house cannot easily be widened to accommodate a camper because there is a streetlight directly outside the house and you have to apply for special permission. It has to get moved and so on. But the other day, about a week or so ago, I came across this thing called the mini camper community. Are you all fair with the, uh, the mini camper community, Tilly? I can't say I am, no. Well, let me educate you, my friend, as I have oh, educated no. myself over the past fortnight. So it's kind of, as the name suggests, it's a camper, but it's a mini version. So the ones I've been looking at are based on the Volkswagen Caddy, which is essentially like a small van, but you can get them kitted out so they have all the functionality of a fully-fledged camper, just diddy, like a micro-home, but like a micro-camper. Uh, they have the pop-top roof, so you can have two in the top and two in the bottom. You can get a cooker, a fridge, freezer, you can get plugs. Can't fit a toilet in, they're not that big enough. Um, and, and that would solve my problems about entering the nomadic social work community because it is a small vehicle, so I could get rid of my current car, part exchange it, and I could drive around in the camper. That could be my, if it, you know, I wouldn't just need it if I was camping. I could use it as a general day-to-day run around. Small enough to park on my driveway, and I don't think it would get me the strange... Uh, I mean, I know you think I'm strange, Terry, but most people, you know, I'm a well-respected figure to most people. You know, you think I'm strange, but I, I don't want to put out that impression to people that I'm working with uh, and just rocking up in a van. So I am all over the idea of getting a mini camper van. I've been speaking to people. I've been joining groups. I've been looking at part exchange rates. I've been looking at all sorts. And I'm, I'm keen on it, Tilly. This week's topical theme for me, I'm all about the mini camper. So is this a plan to just go around by yourself or is this a family activity? What do you envisage? Well, as you know, in, in, in my line of work, Tilly, I do a fair bit of travelling. You know, I do a, bit, a fair bit of travelling usually, you know, when, when I'm away doing assessments and doing you know, consultancy work and so on. And when I'm away doing, obviously, like media things in relation to social work news, I usually stay over, you know, stay over at a hotel or I get an Airbnb or somewhere like that. And uh, not the case when you've got a camper, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. I can imagine you're going to become quite obsessed with the camper van. I can imagine you're going to join like a caravan club mm-hmm. and you're going to be looking at all the reviews for the best campsite. Yeah. I think yeah. I think you're going to go all in. I can just see it now. Well, apparently there's beef. There's beef between the mini camper community and the mainline camper community. Apparently there's kind of like some of these... Some of these, you know, lads in the big campers look down on the mini campers and don't think you're a proper camper. So there's kind of, it's like the mods and rockers, you know, there's a bit of beef, there's a bit of beef between the clans. I can just, I've got this picture in my mind of you driving around, you know, in Scooby-Doo, in the mystery Mystery machine. Mystery mobile, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
I could just imagine you having a really like garishly coloured camper van no. and just being the social worker of the north and no. people can see you coming in like a, a garish camper no. van. It's no. the opposite. It's the opposite. I'm going for stealth camping. So I'm looking <laughs> to get a, a generic, just giving off the look of like a white van man. I'm looking for a generic looking camper. And that means I can just park up anywhere. You know, I can park up in like an overnight car park, hop in the back, just bed down. No one will know I'm in there. You know, I could be recording the podcast mobile. So listeners, if you start to hear a bit of a tinny echo in about a month or two's time, just know that I'm mobile. Just know that I'm out there in the mobile studio. I mean, aren't you concerned about how it's going to look to your families that you're supporting just turning up in a camper van? It kind of gives me a bit of like child catcher vibes. I don't know. But Tilly, I'm not, I'm not sold. Is, but this is the whole point that I'm not getting a big camper. These these mini campers, they just look like a van. I just look like I'm rocking up in a van. My whole reason for not going all out and getting a big camper, as well as the practical reasons, such as having three cars in the driveway, is that that is an impractical option for a day-to-day social worker to have. But the mini camper is the best of both worlds, just a van. If a social worker rocked up in a van, would you say anything? You'd probably look twice, but you probably wouldn't question it. You wouldn't think they were living inside of it, definitely. Well, listeners, watch this space to see if Vince buys the minivan, and I'm sure we will be hearing more about this in due course. Talk about our listeners. We have had another review in, Tilly, my friend. Woo-hoo! This review comes <laughs> all the way from the USA. Five-star review from Kalina's 28 via Apple Podcasts. Kalina's says, fantastic podcast. I absolutely love this podcast. If you are a social worker anywhere in the world working with any population, you need to listen to social work radio. The hosts have great chemistry and they help me know that I am not the only person with my professional struggles and frustrations. Thanks for such a quality show. There we go, Kalinas. Kalinas28, thank you ever so much. Thank you for listening, Kalinas, and thank you ever so much for showing the, uh, the universal nature of our offering to the social work world. Lovely. Yes. Thank you very much, Kalina. It's lovely to get a a nice review. Listeners, if you would like to hear your name and your review read out on the podcast, simply go over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you listen to your show and leave a five-star, well, leave any review, to be honest. I mean, we'd prefer if you left a five-star review. And if you do leave a one-star review, don't be too harsh. I might might edit that if you're very horrible, but leave a review and we'll read them out at the start of every show. Right. Back to the point, Telly. I've got a question for you, Telly, okay? You ready? Yeah, go on then. Have you ever been taken advantage of? <laughs> That's a bit of a, a, a ominous question, isn't it? Just um, a question. You, you, you could attribute an ominous nature or a benign nature to it. It's just, have you ever been taken advantage of? I'm sure I have many, many times, yes. In the workplace? Mm, yeah, yeah, in the workplace. The reason I ask this is last week there was some research that came out. The research was completed by Duke University in North Carolina, and they found that employees who go above and beyond in their jobs are more likely to be, and this is an exact quote here, selectively and ironically targeted for exploitation by 
their managers. The researchers found that social workers who put in extra effort beyond their contracted hours and job description are increasingly likely to receive extra instructions and tasks from their managers. They will get additional duties, such as being expected to work late and taking on additional responsibilities. And managers tend to see a willingness to go above and beyond as an opportunity to delegate extra work. The researchers found that not all leaders self-sacrifice have a significantly adverse impact on the overcommitted workers themselves, with issues arising in both their work and home lives due to burnout, but it can also damage the entire workforce due to managers expecting extra hours of effort as the norm. People going the extra mile in work often are said to do so with the assumption they will be rewarded for their efforts. However, and this is key here, Tilly, the researchers found that wasn't necessarily the case. Instead, they found that instead of protecting or rewarding them, loyal employees are in fact selectively and ironically targeted by managers for exploitative practices. The targeting of these loyal workers is mediated by the assumption that loyal individuals are readily willing to make personal sacrifices for the objects of their loyalty. Wow. Heavy stuff, Dilly. Heavy stuff. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? I'm just going to ask you this first. Do you agree with that research or is this bogus science? Do we Can we dismiss this? Or anecdotally, can you see evidence to support this? Maybe not now, or have you seen evidence to support this? I mean, I can. I kind of get it. I have a real problem with the term exploitation, though, because to me, that makes it feel like it's some sort of nefarious personal gain that managers are getting. And and they're not. When you're delegating work as a manager, then you're doing it because there's a lot of work to delegate. You're not in control of that work. Um, and in our line of work, in social work, you, you, these are people that, that need support either whether it's an assessment or an intervention these are not just a number of cases these are people behind it and your manager is only trying to make sure that they deliver on their statutory targets and the people get the best service that they can possibly deliver so to have some sort of underlying connotation that there's something not quite right or or above board going on I find that quite difficult to stomach particularly as a manager Um, but I think the overall sort of outcome of the research where people who are working well not harder but but more efficient perhaps in their work or go above and beyond repeatedly and will put in those extra hours without complaint yeah I kind of see that those people end up working harder um because as a manager, I know that there are certain pieces of work where when I need them to be done, you're going to give them to the employee who's going to get them done and be reliable. You're not going to waste your time giving it to someone who's going to really struggle with that or it's going to tip them over to the edge into burnout or it's going to take them way longer past the deadline. Um, you've got to kind of manage your, your workforce. So I think there is some truth to it, but I'm not keen on the overall heading. So like you, I I did struggle with the use of the term exploitation. So I I read through the full research and 
they do use this 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 term a lot. So in their conclusion, this is how they explain their use of the term exploitation in their conclusion. If anyone wants to read this research further, if you just go on to mysocialworknews.com, um, search for the headline, Loyal Workers Are Targeted by Managers. Just search that in the search bar at the top. It'll come up with this story, which was published on the 22nd of March. So the researchers, Stanley and Neck, said, Tilly, and this is a direct quote as well, specifically relating to your point there about use of the term exploitation, they say, society has made some positive strides in formally outlawing egregious kinds of exploitation, but more subtle types of exploitation remain all too common. Insofar as exploitative managerial practices persist, certain workers will be targeted for exploitation. Although loyalty is typically touted as a moral virtue worth exemplifying, our research indicates that loyal workers are perceived to be more exploitable than other employees. Do you agree with the use of the term exploitation in in what they've said? If not, how would you describe it instead? No, I, I still don't agree with it because to be exploitation in my mind, there has got to be some sort of intent behind it or some sort of personal gain. Whereas this isn't, we're talking about allocating work in a social work team where, as I say, people needing support. This isn't for personal gain of the manager. This isn't to make them look good or go above and beyond. This is to make sure that people have an essential service. So I still really struggle with that term. Um, I don't know what I would use instead. I'm not sure. I might have to have a think about that and come back to it. Um, So I I, I didn't like this. I I didn't necessarily like the term either. I wrote a response to the piece, not not contesting the piece, but I wrote a response to the piece, and we'll kind of get into that a bit um, later. But in my response to the piece, uh, you know, I said I don't blame managers for having to make those choices. I've been there myself as a manager. I managed a team full of social workers who were all at or above capacity. When a case came in or was re-referred, it had to go somewhere. I couldn't hold the case. I used to do more visits than I should have because I, you know, I felt like I had capacity to do that. But that was a, I was on a hiding to nothing because then it never stops. Uh, you know, a child or a family can't be left without support, so someone has to get it. And at that point, I mean, like you've said, to the judgment as call has to be made. Who can bear the burden best? I don't think it's active exploitation on a manager's behalf. It certainly wasn't when I was doing it. But I don't think I can argue with the perception that it may look that way to researchers studying the field from afar. And this is why the term is a bit of a grey area for me, because I, I don't think it's exploitation, because I've done that. I've given workers cases that I knew could only be achieved by them, you know, doing evening visits that week that sent them over their points, which sent them over the cases, had to go somewhere. I've done that. Now, because I've done it, I didn't think I was exploiting them. Of course not. But from the outside looking in, if a manager is giving a member of their team that they supervise and they are superior to, work that that manager knows they cannot achieve without working above and beyond, knows that is way above their pay scale to have to deal with that level of work, knows it could potentially contribute to work burnout, and knows there's no way that they can achieve that within the salary contracted hours which they're paid for. From the outside look at Intelli, kind of looks like exploitation to me, especially if a decision is made to give that to the people who seem to be most keen to impress. 
might not be exploitation, might not even be taking advantage of them, but there's certainly a vested idea, well, I'm going to give it to them because they are more able to do this or more readily able to do that. And again, from the outside looking in, does look a little bit like exploitation to me, Tilly, or have I got this wrong? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I really do. Um, I think, I suppose for me, it's managers aren't in control of what comes through the door and it's not like they're delegating tasks for the sake of it. It, it to me, it comes back to like all services are under-resourced. We work yes. in a public sector, which is on its knees and no matter what level of management you are, I don't, you're not in control of that. And the law says that we have to do certain things like in child protection, you have to do section 47 inquiry for people at risk of a significant harm. Same with adults, we have Care Act um, eligibility and, and timescales to adhere to and all of this. It's, it's not stuff that managers are choosing to do. And I think that's probably where I'm having the most problem with it. Exploitation mm. to me feels like there's a choice to do that. Whereas as you and I both know as managers, there is no choice to do it because if you don't do it, then someone could ultimately die. Okay. So what can social workers do if they fall into this category and are trying too hard? So this research suggests that social workers who are keen to get ahead and that are keen to be seen to be ever so eager. And I'll be honest to you, that was me for the first year of my career. That's how I ended up with 45 cases. I had not even completed my assessment supported year in education, my ASYE, and I had 45 cases in a local authority that was on the cusp of just being found requires improvement. Um, my manager had left. I was given a brand new manager. Brilliant, you know, exceptional social worker, but not, a good idea to put an exceptional social worker into a first managerial position when you've got such high caseloads. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I was in that position. Again, I, I certainly didn't feel actively exploited, but I was in a position where I was the kind of person this research hints at who was keen to Im impress and their only reward for being keen was given more work. What can social workers do if they feel that they perhaps fall into that category of trying too hard to impress? How do you find a balance between being eager and not letting yourself get overburdened? Is it possible? Because I imagine you were incredibly eager like me, Telly. How do you do it? Is it possible? Can you do it? <laughs> I still am. I don't know. I haven't found the answer. Um, I think you need to be honest with yourself about how much of time and energy you can give to your social work job and I think once you've set those firm boundaries like for me being a, a single woman with no children no caring responsibilities there are elements that I, I know I can go sometimes above and beyond without it having a huge impact on my family or my personal life. Kelly um, do you not uh, do you not consider you've got a caring responsibility for me? Oh, always, always. Apart from me, apart from me. Just, <laughs> I, 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 you said that, no care responsibilities. No, I me. mean in the yeah. the uh, traditional sense of the word, people, you're caring right. with children no, thank, or, or vulnerable adults. You've completely made me lose track of my train of thought now. Where was I? Um, my mind's gone completely blank. Thanks Sorry, for that, Ben. Oh, well, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's why you're my carer, because that's what you would do. I would unnecessarily interrupt you, uh, just for the sake of 
seeking reassurances of your affection for me and you your care for me. But no, what you were saying is in terms of how you were uh, fell into that category, how you've managed to balance that in oh, the sense yeah. that you were just getting to a point where you ha- you've managed to balance that because you haven't had significant duties outside of work. But what if people have, Tilly? What if people have got significant duties where they simply can't work evenings and weekends because they've got they have got more than a 39-year-old camping enthusiast to care for? <laughs> um, I, mean, I take you, you camping. To- I take you camping, Tilly. When I get the camper and me and you's going, me and you's going camping. No, I'll pass on that. I, Why um, not? You can be in the roof. We don't have no. to sleep together. You can be in the roof. I'll be on the, do, you want, do, you want the, do you want the roof or the floor? No, I'm a hotel only or a- ah, Airbnb. There's got to be you, bricks oh, and well, kind of girl. Right, okay. G- give, give me uh, something you would get in a hotel and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how having it in the mini camp will be better. Okay, yeah. we've completely gone off topic. Right. Putting mini uh, camper vans uh, aside now. Uh, Let's concentrate. We're supposed to be a social work podcast, not a camping the, podcast. The, the, the camping is rooted. The camping and the social work's warm. All right, it's, all right. Right, let me carry on without interrupting I will, I will, me about... I will um, bite my tongue. Yes, okay. Um. So I think as, a, as any social worker it needs to own their own personal circumstances and put those boundaries in place if you've got a child to pick up at five o'clock and you cannot be late to go and pick them up then you need to do that and that and your employer no matter where you work has to respect that and I think yeah you've got to put always put your personal life before your job because social workers as of of any occupation really are replaceable and we know that that's how employers as organizations in general treat us so you you don't get a second chance with your friends and family so okay why is somebody's personal life more important just because they've had a child well i don't think it's necessarily more important but if you've got someone that's dependent on you and you've got to go and pick them up then you haven't got that flexibility. I'm not saying that if a person had a, a a dog to go back and care for or had a date or whatever it is, that, that that's not equally as important because it is. If, and, mm. and you make your own decision about how much you're going to give and you don't go over that. I know that okay. that's what I've had to come to terms with as a social worker. I know that there's certain days and times when I will not be at work and my work phone is off and my work computer is off and I won't look at it. And there are other days when it's okay. And you've got to, I think, take some personal responsibility for saying no and being able to say no. But is it possible to do an excellent job and go home on time? Um, yeah, I think you, you can. And it, and it depends what area of social work you're in. Um, I've been in jobs where I've been able to go home on time and been able to take a lunch break and it's not impacted on the amount of work there have been some teams when that was a pie in the sky idea and I would work (laughs) ridiculously long hours just to not even scrape the surface I think if you've got a reasonable caseload and you've got a reasonable to-do list then it is possible to do a good job but if you're in a team where you've got 45 cases as you said at the beginning and that's the norm and you're practicing within chaos no matter what you do whether you work your hours or don't work your hours you're not going to be doing the best job that you can possibly do 
So what this research suggests, as well as that eager workers are exploited by management, it also suggests that eager workers who go above and beyond are toxic in the workplace because they create a culture where that is seen as normalised and people who have got duties outside of work that they cannot forsake are held to unaccountable standards because other people in the team are managing and they're not. But the only reason other people in the team are managing is because they're working 20 hours a week for free. How do you stop that, Tilly? I really hate it when people in a team compare themselves to one another. And it's something that I must have done when I was a social worker all the time. But when I did become a manager, I realised how difficult it is for people to compare themselves to one another and you can't just look at someone's caseload list and think right well that person's got 20 cases they must be working at at one level but that person's only got 10 cases well then they must be working to a 50% capacity or half a standard caseloads are so unique and people are all unique and I just wish people would just focus on the work that they've got rather than looking at their colleagues who you might not know what personal circumstances they've got or professional circumstances they've got they might have um, practice issues that they're going through they might have personal issues who knows it's to be honest it's no one's business except yours and your managers but that that that's all well and good Tilly unless you are working in a local authority and organization which many of our listeners will be where every Monday morning they get a KPI list, a key performance indicator list, which shows whose visits are done, whose visits are late, whose visits are significantly late, who's got child protection reports coming up, who's overdue, whose single assessments are late, and so on. So on a managerial level, and if you've got a supportive manager such as yourself, yes, that works, Tilly, but... uh, May I be so bold as to suggest that what you've said there sounds nice, but is very likely not the experience of many of our listeners and many people in social work in a modern day age where we are very much procedurally driven and held accountable to our throughput of work? I mean, those KPI lists are just diabolical. I I don't see how they're allowed to still be there. Um, If you've got to have stats that you're working to and deadlines, that should be done on an individual basis between you and your manager. They should not be broadcast for the whole team to be sort of ranked about who's the best and who's the worst. I think that just creates a toxic, horrible culture. And if that is your experience then that is just, that's not everyone's team experience. Um, but that's just not a nice place to be. I don't know, is that more children's services? I, we, we don't really see that. Or well, I certainly haven't seen that in adults. Well, I don't see it, Tilly, because how often do you think my visits are late? Oh, of course, yeah, Mr. Perfect. They, they'd never be a, a minute late, would they? Well, no. No, but that's, so this, 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 this gets us onto a good point, Norm. It gets us onto a good point. How do... We get our jobs done on time to a good standard and only work the hours we are paid for. 
I mean, you're asking the wrong person because my time management skills <laughs> are appalling. Um, <laughs> and that's why I really hated doing long-term work. I, I, I can't manage a long-term caseload. It just doesn't suit my personality. My best jobs and the jobs where I w- was effective at my job and was what I'd like to say a, a good social worker was when I was doing duty or short-term intervention work where I like hospital work for example I could go in on that day I'd be saying right there's five referrals that's just come through the door go and see those five patients assess them get them out of hospital and then move on to the next person I I need that throughput and that fast-paced duty kind of crisis management situation give me a a long caseload of cases where I've got to schedule stuff in for the future and set time aside I mean I am failing at that I was appalling I'd had assessments that were out of date and I was just I'd prioritize the urgent stuff and leave (laughs) that mundane stuff so ignore me listeners don't 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 um, ask me for my advice in that. I will go straight back to you because Vince, I know that this is your, you're in your element when you're doing this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. So look, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always this way. I used to work off. I used to try various different things. I used to try to do lists. I used to try things as they came in. I never really used to have a schedule. You know, I would, I would only remember that my visits were done the day before. When I got those KPI lists, I used to rely on them. I used to get those lists of like, oh, God, I've got my visits tomorrow. I didn't plan my visits. I didn't plan them in advance. I didn't know when I was going to do my minutes. I would usually be hastily writing up the minutes of one meeting from a month ago, uh, an hour before the next one was due to come around and hand them out in person because those are the days when meetings were all in person when we go back 10 years. Things are very different now. Things are very different. Uh, I I cannot I cannot afford to work uh, above and beyond my hours. I tell you, I simply can't. I've got two children, as well as doing um, frontline social work. I undertake independent social work assessments. I am the content editor for Social Work News, and I do this podcast. So my time is incredibly precious. It's incredibly precious, and because of that. This is going to sound awful and so cringy. And I I believe me, I used to hate, I used to hate this thing, but I kind of hate it because I ignored it so much. And now it's true. I genuinely had to learn to work smarter and not harder. I knew you were going to say that. I was cringing internally. I know. know, that's, That's why I hate it because it was used to be a word that I raged against because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see how you could apply scientific time management techniques from managerial schools of thought to social work, because I always thought, well, that's a science and social work's an art. The truth of the matter is you very much can. And the reason you very much can is the fact that the vast majority of our time in social work isn't spent doing direct work with clients. It simply isn't. The vast majority of our time in social work is spent recording, minuting, reporting, observing, analyzing, which is skills which you can apply to more or less any academic discipline in any professional field. So when you learn that, when you learn that, you can work out the building blocks of it. I I could spend hours talking about this, but the, the basics of it are just time management, planning ahead, 
When I meet a family for the first time, I've planned in my visits for the next six months. Right, I'll be here every single every single second Monday or every single fourth Monday, whether it's a child in need or a child protection plan or a looked after child. I'll be here at this time every four weeks. Obviously, if there's an emergency come up and people need to see me beforehand, I will. And people get that schedule. I write that schedule up. I give people that letter with the visits. Same for the meetings. You know, we know when we pick up a child protection plan, an initial child protection conference, where we've got three months of meetings to go till it's a review conference. If the review conference rolls on, which it almost always does, unless there's an exceptional circumstance, you know, you've got six months. There's really no reason whatsoever if you've, got to a, a point in a, in a support in a family when you review child protection conference, there's no reason why you can't have every single visit and every single meeting booked in for the next six months. And then you simply do, you start bunching those visits together. Right, so I work in a certain area. I've got these certain families. And I'll go into significant detail on it, Tilly. I look at I look at postcodes and I bunch my visits together so I know the, the shortest possible route between each of my visits. So I'll visit all families in one postcode on a Monday, all families in another postcode on a Tuesday. I'll book out an hour first thing the following morning to type up my visits. And when I do a meeting, I'll book out an extra half hour after that meeting to type up my minutes and get them sent down. I'll also block out time for assessments if I know I'm going to assess a family, whether that's as part of my day-to-day social work job or as an independent social worker. I'll book out all of my sessions with them, all of my observations of contact. And again, the family get that in a letter. The solicitor gets that in a letter. It goes into my diary. doesn't change. What I also do as well is I make sure to leave large gaps of free time. I cannot work with micromanagers who will go into my diary, see gaps and put things in. I would simply say to a manager, look, I'm not going to stand that. If there's an issue of my work, if my work's coming in late and my work's delayed, then yeah, by all means, I expect to be held accountable. But if my work's done, if my visits are done on time, if my minutes are done on time, if my assessments and reports are almost filed on time, I expect a manager to respect me enough to not go and fill in those gaps. The reason I've got those gaps, Tilly, is inevitably our clients' lives can be chaotic at times. We wouldn't be involved in people's lives if there wasn't a certain degree of chaos in them. Um, so you have to have that flexibility and shift things around. But when you shift one thing, you shift the other. The other key thing that I do as well, I do not have a to-do list. When I get an action, I put it in my diary to do. So if I know that I've got an action, say I know that I've got to ring up a health visitor, got to ring up a health visitor, a health visitor has left me a phone message saying, give her a call. I'll look at my diary, I'll block out 15 minutes and I'll call the health visitor then. I'll do that for every single action again. A time box I put in my diary when I'm going to do that and I do it then. Sounds sounds simple the way that I've said it there. It really is quite complicated because there's a lot of science behind it. But being very, very detailed and very molecular in your small habits, having a good routine. Believe you me, Tilly, it can make massive, massive differences because it did in my life. I went from regularly working 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. was my usual working hours in my first job. I was working 11 hours a day. That was my usual hours. I'd start at 8 a.m. I'd be home for 7 p.m. That was just an average day. I would do that five days a week. That's 55 hours. I was working... You know, that's 18 hours more than I was paid for. Now, I, the, the, my, my frontline social work job run, I'm assistant team manager. I cannot recall the last time I worked 
more or less than 30 hours. My employer gets exactly 30 hours a week and I complete everything expected of me within that time because I use my time as efficiently as possible. I've got no other option, Tilly. I can't. I couldn't afford not to do that. Yeah, so for all the listeners there that are now just thinking, oh my gosh, how could I ever do that because I am not that organized if you're like me and just think oh that just I don't know if I could be that structured or routine my brain doesn't work like that um some simple tips that I have picked up along the way and I think it's some I think it's easier with homeworking as well because I found in an office I am one of those really annoying chatty people that will just go and distract other people and then realize that a whole afternoon's gone by and I haven't done any work because I've been talking about I've been talking about work but been distracted by doing like case discussions and office chat um so going on do not disturb where you can if you've got an important um report to write up or minutes or whatever um use that function on teams because in this world where everyone is now dictated to by their green lights and their red lights and their yellow lights and whether they're there or not um that can be really helpful especially you've got lots of colleagues that are messaging you all the time asking for support turning emails off or putting time in your diary like not as time box as yours Vince but um I don't know an hour in the morning and an hour at the end of the day to go through and answer email queries because it took me a long time to realize that you don't have to answer every phone call or reply to every email straight away um that's not to say that you shouldn't um prioritize them and there's certain queries that you have to deal with urgently but I'd always feel that immense pressure as soon as an email came in that someone was waiting for me to reply to them um, and giving myself permission not to think about that and actually prioritizing some of the more boring tasks like writing up assessments. And I will say they're boring because you know the outcome of the assessment before you've actually managed to wade through the stuff that you've got to type up. Um, Have you heard of the concept of attention residue? No. What's that? So... Um, we we believe or we've been led to believe that people can actually multitask. You know, you'll, you'll hear this term multitasking all the time. And certainly, certainly it's become common knowledge or a common idea in social work that we can multitask. The science doesn't back up the idea of multitasking. It, it, it does say that women are slightly better than it at men. And that's where you get this stereotype that men are sort of more tunnel vision and women can generally have a wider scope and focus on things more. But when they've actually researched this and looked at, you know, how our brain functions when presented with several tasks or jumping from one task to another, they have found that even when we move from one task to another, parts of our brain still become fixated on the other task. And that can last for up to 40 minutes. So imagine a daily occurrence in social work, okay? Uh, you're in the office, your phone's going, then you've got an email to answer. A colleague pops in for a question about a specific case. An IRO pops in for a question about another case. One of your colleagues is telling you about the hot date they've had that weekend. And amongst this, you've got to have a look at your to-do list. You're worried about what's coming up tomorrow. And in the background, if your computer opened up on a document, is a report that you're working on. 
I don't think that's too far-fetched to describe that, Tilly, is it? That's a, probably a normal day for most people. That's a quiet day, There we that's go. <laughs> that's a quiet day. That's a quiet day then. So that's a quiet day. I, I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, people might think I'm over-egging the pudding there, but it, that that is a typical day, isn't it, if you're in the office? Oh, so. easily, if not more. I mean, there's normally at least 10 phone calls going off at one time. Yes. and about your emails but I, I can't keep on track sometimes more come in than I can read them as, as that quickly so yeah it's constant but as human beings when we are not we are certainly not designed to be in that environment because we haven't we've already been in that environment for two decades two decades two decades we've been in environments where we were easily reachable by mobile phone and by email Two decades, Tilly. You know, that's mm. well within the span of my working lifetime. I mean, when I first started working, albeit not in social work, people were using pages. People were using pages. If somebody wanted to call you, you would get a page and then you would go and find a landline and call them back. Now, if you think of the multiple ways people... So you could be sat at your desk. You could be sat at your desk in social work. People can contact you via email, via Teams, via landline, by mobile phone. If they can't get through to you, they can go to your manager. They can go to one of your colleagues. They can go to the lady at the front desk who's going to ring you. We don't have that downtime, and we are suffering massively because of it. And this is the important thing, Tilly. Not only are we suffering, but the quality of our work is significantly diminishing because of it, because we do not give our important tasks the due attention and recognition they deserve. Because rather than focusing on the most important things, which is supporting the clients we work with and focusing on the really important work, the assessments and the visits and the analysis of their needs and the referrals to services that can make a difference, our minds are distracted and we have a tension residue and we end up delivering substandard work. Not only does it disservice to our clients, but leaves us with significant issues with stress and burnout because we haven't done as well as we could have due to the fact our minds have been distracted and all over the place. That's I mean, that just residue. sums it up. Yeah, that is exactly the issue that we have. Um, I couldn't have said it better than myself, really. It's it's my constant battle, whether there I was go. a social worker, frontline social worker or a manager. I flip between things. And because I'm flaky anyway, I mm-hmm. I find that really hard to deal with. And and that's why um, I I have the impression in some workplaces that I'm a bit antisocial because I I don't do that I I avoid going to the office as much as humanly possible I focus on my clients and my work 100 uh, percent and I just don't engage with I don't engage with tasks which aren't directly related to the role that I'm employed for and directly related to my client's best interests. Uh, Some people might say that would be selfish of me, but I take a different view and say, actually, that's what allows me to be the best social worker I can be for the people that I'm allocated to. Because believe you me, my clients never say that I'm not there for them. Maybe we all need to take a leaf out of your book then, Vince, and become antisocial and time box, and um, our, our clients will thank us for it. Um, well, I'm not too sure about that, Tilly. I'm just saying what works for me. It, work, it works for me, okay? It works for me. And 
it took me a long time to get here. And I was only really able to have the mental capacity to start working like this when given the freedom that the shift to homework and afforded me because you can't possibly, you can't possibly work in that. You can't possibly work in a style that suits you best when we are all informed that you have to be in the office every single day of the week, because that is essentially dictating to workers. Well, okay, this is where we think you'll do your best practice. You'll be sat in an office. You'll spend two hours a day traveling there and back. You'll be sat in an office. You'll be amongst everyone. You'll be in a busy environment. And this is how you will work best. That didn't give me the freedom and flexibility to build the tactic, the techniques and gain the knowledge that did allow me to work. Now, I know some people aren't like that. Some people really, really struggled with homeworking and particularly newly qualified social workers and those that perhaps lived alone. I know it's a massive issue. We, one of our, you know, our fellow writers, Maisie's written about that before. So, you know, it's a significant issue with someone I know, let alone other people that have read views online and just comments, but it certainly works for me. Um, talking about time boxing and wrapping up, Tilly, I think that's about us for today. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've covered the subject. We've, well, we've only really scratched the surface. We I think have. we can talk about time management. Uh, that's a whole different podcast in itself. But um, yeah, we've tickled the readers' fancies, hopefully, and given oh, them some food oh, I like that, Tilly. Say that again. Say that again. What have we done? No, I'm not saying it again. Say it again. You heard uh, me the first time. What did you, you, say did, you know my hearing's bad, Tilly. What did you say? No, because you heard that. 100% oh, you heard that. You, tick, <laughs> you tickled the reader's fancy. Oh, nice. On that note, our listeners, was it listeners? We tickled our listeners' fancy. Yeah, nice. did I say readers? I meant... Um... Yeah, I meant listeners. Um, I was going to encourage you to say it again there, just to clarify that you meant listeners, but lest we get a complaint from Ofcom for a male harassing his junior female colleague. I wouldn't want that, Tilly. I wouldn't want that reputation. No, we've been there before. <laughs> I hope not. Well, we haven't been there. Come on. People will think there's something toward if you come up with that. No, 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 no. Clarify that, Tilly. Clarify. We are just joking. People we have joked about our our banter before and not realised that actually we're good friends and it and we get on and, and yeah, the kind nothing of th- bad. The kind of friends that can go camping together. No. Uh, no. Hard no. Like I said, bricks and mortar only. No staying in a van. I'll I'll leave that just to you. Oh well, you've tickled my fancy only to dash me, only to dash my hopes. I've been led on. I've been led on. Do you know what you've done there, Tilly? Do you know what you've done? What have I done? You've taken advantage of me. Oh no, no, I haven't, because I've been saying no from the outset. You led me on. You led me on. You thought you made me believe it was possible, but alas, I've been taken advantage of unexploited in the workplace on that note listeners thank you ever so much as always for your likes your subscriptions and your reviews if you want to be like colleen 28 from the usa and leave us a review we will read that out on next week's show until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me